I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 will be in verses 35 to 44 today. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. There are black pew Bibles in front of you if you need a Bible this morning. When you get there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury And watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. My wife Kelly and I went on our honeymoon to Hawaii over 15 years ago, and uh, one of the things that I was most excited about on our honeymoon was trying to snorkel. I had never snorkeled in my life up to that point, but it it seemed like a lot of fun. And so on one of the first mornings we were there, we rented some gear and we went out to Black Rock Beach on Maui to give it a try. Supposedly there at that beach, you could see lots of fish and also sea turtles. So Kelly gave me a brief lesson in how to use our gear, and off we went. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, I had never seen a fish up close like that before. A whole new realm of this world had opened up to me, and I was thoroughly enjoying myself. Life was good. I was in Hawaii, great weather, new wife, lots of fish. I assumed I was doing just fine. But I hadn't seen a sea turtle yet. And so as I tried to find one, I failed to realize how far out from the shore the waves had taken me. And when some water got into my snorkeling gear due to my inexperience, I found myself struggling in the waves and, and driven by the waves into a coral outcrop, which Kelly had warned me before to avoid. I tried to climb up to kind of gather myself and get some air, but 
I kept getting tossed by the waves and, and scratched by the coral. And not being the best swimmer didn't help. I was, I was in trouble. I had lost sight of Kelly. And no one was near. And I was really unsure of how to try to even get back to the beach. You know, one moment I was enjoying life without a care in the world. I was operating under the false assumption that I was doing just fine. But overconfident in my abilities and headed toward a hazardous area, I was actually in a place of great danger. Faulty assumptions in life can lead to extremely damaging consequences. In our pride, we can assume that we are stronger than we are. In our ignorance, we can assume that we're safer than we actually are. Our incorrect assumptions can make us look like a foolish emperor with no clothes. They can destroy relationships. They can bring about financial loss. We're more easily deceived than we're prone to admit. And sometimes we get in so deep that our reality becomes distorted to great detriment to ourselves. We have an example of that in our passage from Mark this morning. At the end of Mark chapter 12, we find Jesus confronting the false assumptions and the religious deception that characterized the Jewish scribes in his day. And we find him warning them of the danger that's ahead if they continue to assume that there is nothing wrong with their understanding and nothing wrong with their way of life. Here in Mark, we find Jesus once again in the temple during the week before his death. He had arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover feast just a couple days earlier. In chapter 11, we learn that he rode in on a donkey to much fanfare, but his hero's welcome didn't last long. There were a number of groups waiting for him that were united in opposition against him. And the way that Jesus had been conducting himself didn't help his cause. When he got to Jerusalem, his, his first order of business was to wreak havoc in the temple marketplace because it had become a den for priestly robbers. And this obviously incensed the leaders. They questioned Jesus about where he got the authority to do something like that. But Jesus didn't answer them directly. Instead, he told a parable that revealed the nature of their hearts. They didn't really care whether he had proper authority. They had already made their judgment. They, they felt threatened by his presence and had decided to get rid of him no matter where his authority actually came from. But they were in a precarious position. They really wanted to destroy Jesus. But they also knew that the Jewish people were enamored with him. And so they tried to find a middle way, a, a way to trap him. They tried to corner him with questions about taxes and the resurrection and questions about the law. But Jesus couldn't be stumped. He answered each of their questions perfectly and with great wisdom. And if you look at verse 30, 34 of chapter 12, you'll notice that after his last encounter with one of the scribes, Mark tells us that no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
So Jesus took the opportunity to ask a question of his own. A question that would challenge their assumptions and lead into another warning against their false religion. In the passage before us, Jesus warns against a a false religiosity, a deceptive religiosity that doesn't submit to Him as Lord in radical commitment. In these verses, Jesus challenges and condemns. And He he does so in order to warn us and to, to wake us up to the fact that we might not be as okay as we think we are. We might be harboring wrong assumptions about Him. We might be living a a false spirituality that looks decent to others in this world. But in reality, we might be headed toward a dangerous destination. As we listen and learn from Jesus this morning, you need to be thinking about your own life before God. Do your beliefs and does your life evidence true religion in the sight of God? Are you assuming that you're doing okay when you're really not? This morning, I want you to be honest with yourself. Be careful that you don't fall into the trap of false religion, into the the trap of living a, a religious life that doesn't actually submit to Jesus as Lord and doesn't make decisions for Him that seem radical to this world. Don't fall into deceptive religiosity that doesn't submit to Jesus in radical commitment. Today we're going to divide our passage into two sections. In the first section, in verses 35 to 37, I want you to notice that Jesus challenges our false assumptions. And then in the remaining verses, we'll see that Jesus condemns our false religion. Jesus challenges false assumptions, and He condemns false religion. Let's begin in verse 35, where we see Jesus challenging our false assumptions. Here we see that Jesus was still in the temple. This is likely Tuesday of Passion Week. He had been fielding questions, but as I mentioned earlier, it was now His turn to ask one. And He said in the hearing of all, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can the teachers of the law in Israel claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, the scribes would have had an answer for that question. The fact that the Christ would be from the line of David is well established in the Old Testament. The the scribes could have pointed out that God promised to King David in 2 Samuel that he would raise up offspring of David and established David's kingdom forever. David was the preeminent king of Israel. He was a shepherd and a musician and a warrior and a great administrator. Under his rule, the land of Israel was expanded and his nation was well managed. He oversaw the golden age of Israel. But after his death, you know that Israel started its decline, and eventually there grew a yearning in the hearts of the people of Israel for a return to the golden years of David's reign. This was in line with God's promises to His people that one day a ruler would come to restore the fortunes of the house of David and the people of God. Isaiah spoke of a shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse, David's father. 
Jeremiah predicted that the Lord would raise up for David a righteous branch to be king and to save his people. Ezekiel wrote of a future David that would shepherd God's people. And though the exact phrase, son of David, was never explicitly connected to the Messiah in the Old Testament, there, were, there was the clear expectation that one from the line of David would come to reign over and deliver the people of God. And eventually the term son of David became a popular way for the Jews to refer to the Messiah. That term shows up in Jewish extra-biblical literature from the first century B.C. And we know already from Mark's gospel that the Jews associated the coming Messiah with this term. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 47, when the blind beggar Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was near, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And along similar lines, in in chapter 11, verse 10, it says that the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem shouted, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Because that's what the Old Testament promised. But unfortunately for the scribes, Jesus didn't end his question there. He went on to quote from Psalm 110, a psalm that David wrote. It's a a psalm that David probably wrote as a royal psalm describing the king of Israel. But if you read it, you'll notice that it's also a psalm filled with messianic overtones. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was moved to write this psalm to describe the coming Messiah. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted or alluded to psalm in all the New Testament. It's referenced 33 times. It's a crucial psalm for understanding the work of Christ. And so, in his question about the Davidic sonship of the Messiah, Jesus went to this psalm that David himself penned, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about the Messiah. And in the first verse of that psalm, David declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, let's slow down a minute and just focus on that first line. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, it can be a little confusing if you don't think about it for a moment. Okay, so the first Lord in that verse is Yahweh, the Old Testament term for the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And that's why if you go to Psalm 110 in your English Bibles, you will find the all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, there. Now, the second Lord in that phrase is Adonai. That's also a term that refers to God and is translated as a regular, L-O-R-D, Lord, in the Old Testament. But that word Adonai can simply refer to someone who is a superior as well. And then lastly, the my in that phrase refers to David. He's the one writing this psalm. So in this psalm, David writes in verse 1 of how Yahweh God speaks to someone who is superior to David. But think about it. David is the highly respected king of Israel. There is no human in his kingdom who he would realistically call Lord. There there is no son of David that he would call Lord because in Jewish culture, sons were never viewed as superior to their fathers. And so the point Here is this, David is referring to the Messiah. 
His Lord, in Psalm 110, verse 1, is the coming Christ. And so, Jesus said to the people in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Matthew tells us that no one was able to answer Jesus a word. No one there knew how to respond to Jesus because Jesus had just proved from the pen of David himself that the Christ that they all yearned for was more than just the human son of David, more than just a human king who had come with human methods to establish a renewed human kingdom. The the Messiah can't just be the son of David because David calls him Lord. And Jesus was declaring that the Christ was not only the son of David, he was also the son of God. And the implication that couldn't be ignored was that Jesus, the one whom the people themselves had called the Son of God, was no mere man. He was the Son of God. And so in the temple that day, Jesus posed a question about his identity. The common Jewish understanding of the Messiah was only partly true. To ignore the Scripture's own testimony to the divinity of the Christ was to live under the false assumption that he was only a man. But the Messiah was no mere man. Jesus was no mere man. He was able to answer all their questions and thwart all their challenges, not just because he was a wise teacher, but because he is the Lord of all. And he is the one whom all of Psalm 110 speaks of. As the rest of verse 1 says, He is the one who sits at the right hand of God on high. And He is the one under whose feet His enemies will be placed. And as you continue reading on in that psalm, He is the one who will rule with a mighty scepter in the midst of His enemies. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. And He will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The coming Messiah, King would also become a priest. And this happened because of Jesus' work on the cross. Hebrews 7 tells us that by the power of His indestructible life, that He sacrificed for our sins when He offered up Himself in death, He became a priest forever. He reconciled us to God and He lives now interceding like a priest on our behalf with His life and death before the Father, if we simply acknowledge that He is not just a man, but He is also our Lord. Jesus was David's Lord, and He came to be our Lord as well. What will you do with these truths about Jesus? What will you believe about the identity of Jesus? There is no response from the religious elite. Jesus challenged their false assumptions about him, but they had made up their minds already. He was another man just like them, so his teaching and his words had no claim on their lives. But the crowd, on the other hand, heard him gladly. They enjoyed listening to his brilliant responses. They enjoyed listening to his clever questioning in the temple, yet they would turn on him later that week because they too did not truly believe that Jesus was the divine Messiah. They wanted a human king. They wanted a human deliverer. That's what they assumed they needed. They weren't ready to believe that Jesus was actually God in flesh. And the response of the crowd should shake some of you. Enjoying sermons about Jesus. Loving the wisdom of Jesus. Appreciating the good works of Jesus. 
even living out the principles of the life that Jesus advocated, those things can all make you falsely assume that you're okay. That you know Jesus, but, but is Jesus your Lord? Have you, have you really truly submitted to Him as your Master? Do you really believe that He is God? If you do, your life will change. It must change. It must look different than the lives of others in this world. The fact that Jesus is Lord cannot remain an abstraction in the life of the believer. Every person must deal with the identity of Christ. Don't assume that you know Him if you haven't really known Him as your Lord. And so in verses 35 to 37, Jesus challenges our false assumptions. Next, in verses 38 to 44, I want you to notice that Jesus also condemns our false religion. Jesus condemns false religion. In verses 38 to 40, you'll see that Jesus first condemns the scribes who took. He condemns false religion in the scribes who took. Look at verse 38 with me. And Jesus didn't end his day in the temple with an unanswered question. He continued to teach. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. In other words, beware of the experts in the Old Testament law. Well, why? Because they use their knowledge of the law for their own personal benefit. They use their religious authority to take and receive from the people they supposedly served. Notice how Jesus described them. He described them as those who were concerned about their appearance and social status. He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. These scribes like to get dressed up. They like to wear long, fancy robes, most likely made out of white linen, fringed at the bottom, which would give them the appearance of flowing through the streets. These special robes were signs of holiness and devotion, a sign of scholarship and prestige and elegance. Scribes must have enjoyed getting dressed up because it made them feel important, educated, and religious. They liked looking special. The second, the scribes liked being greeted in the marketplace. This was the place where trade happened, where jobs were sought, where kids played, uh, where people hung out to meet and chat. And Joachim Jeremias, who is a a respected 20th century scholar who wrote about Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, said that everyone would rise in respect when a scribe passed by. The only people who were exempt were tradesmen who were busy doing something in their work. The scribes were greeted with titles like rabbi and father and master, and they liked this. They liked feeling respected. Third, the scribes enjoyed the best seats in the synagogues, and these were probably the seats in the very front that faced the congregation. These were seats of honor. You might remember that James wrote about these kinds of seats in chapter 2 of his epistle, when he rebuked believers for giving these seats to the rich over the poor. But these were the seats the scribes liked. They liked the attention. And and fourth, they liked having the places of honor at feasts. They liked being honored. The scribes basked in all the attention and respect they got and all the privilege they they received because they were experts in the law of God. And their religion had become one of taking instead of giving. 
Was it wrong for the people to honor them or for them to sit in the good seats or for them to wear nice robes? No. But it was wrong for them to like it so much. They had gone to the point where they liked the attention and privileges of being an expert in God's law more than they liked the God of that law. Jesus made it clear that the scribes had become enamored with what their expertise in the law had afforded them instead of being captivated by the law itself. It's so easy for us to fall into this trap of false religion like the scribes. Especially for those of us who are actively involved in the ministry of the church. We fall into this trap when we teach and find ourselves seeking the compliments of others or serving with the desire to be noticed. We fall into this trap when we think our giving entitles us to certain treatment in the church. We fall into this trap when we start to think that we should have been asked to lead that small group or have that title or lead that ministry because of everything else that we've already done. Our religion can easily morph from one of humble devotion to one of haughty self-promotion. This is what happened to the scribes. And not only did they love appearance and status and honor, but they were also marked by ruthless greed and false spirituality. And we see this in verse 40. Jesus described described the scribes as those who devour widows' houses. They took advantage of widows, those in society who had the most needs and were the most vulnerable. And you should understand that these scribes weren't allowed to earn an official salary for their knowledge of the law. The Jews looked down upon anyone trying to use God's Word for their personal benefit. And so the scribes weren't necessarily rich like the the Sadducees tended to be. They were academics who relied upon the personal generosity and gifts of the Jewish people, and, and people did give to them. They supported them in their work, but but what seems to have happened is that some of the the scribes began to take advantage of the generosity of the people. In particular, they took advantage of widows. And Mark doesn't tell us exactly how they did this, but it's not hard to imagine how they might have gained the trust of widows to help manage their estate, or charge fees for providing advice, or lean on widows to give them a gift or something of that nature. And it got to the point where Jesus described their practice as devouring the homes of widows, taking everything that was theirs. Instead of caring for widows as the law commanded, they exploited them out of greed. They were selfish, they were corrupt, and though they knew how to talk religiously, their religion was false. And in verse 40, it says that they made long prayers, but it was for a pretense, it was just a show They were offering up empty religious words in order that others might respect them and give to them. And all this is just the tip of the iceberg concerning the scribes. If you go to Matthew 23, you'll find that Jesus actually had a lot more to say about them. Mark just records part of Jesus' warning against them here. They were a group of religious posers and hypocrites. And so Jesus said at the end of verse 40 that not only will they receive condemnation, but they will receive the greater condemnation. 
As those who knew God's law, they should have lived it out, but instead they just used their knowledge to their own advantage, and so their condemnation would be greater because they should have known better. What we see here is that false religion is all about us and not God. It's all about what God can do for us. It's all about how God will help us. It's about self-advancement, not about advancing God's kingdom. It's about taking, it's about using God, and that's what many of the scribes were doing. They were using God for their own purposes. And that continues today. There are many people who go to church just to get, just to take. It's easy to take and to take and to take. And when God or church isn't giving anything that we deem to be valuable, then we don't need God or the church. That attitude can creep up even among those who call themselves Christians and know God's Word much like the scribes. I don't want to go to service or Sunday school or fellowship or small group because I'm not going to get anything out of it. The attitude of the scribes is behind behind that kind of thinking. When, When religion is all about you, it's not true religion in God's eyes. When religion to you is just about what you can take from it, then you really haven't understood true religion. And it's especially horrible when you claim to know God and His Word like the scribes and yet live an utterly hypocritical life. Jesus condemned the false religion of the scribes who selfishly took. But I want you to see that He also condemned false religion through the example of a widow who gave. Jesus condemned false religion through a widow who gave. In In verse 41, Mark tells us that after Jesus finished talking about the scribes, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. This would have been in the court of the women, where both men and women were allowed to go. It was there where 13 collection chests were scattered about that eventually funneled into the temple treasury. And the Mishnah tells us that these receptacles were shaped like trumpets with a bigger opening that would then narrow down so that thieves couldn't pretend to give and then reach in and take a little bit out. And these treasury chests were designated for different types of offerings. Now, remember that there were no checks in those days. There was no online giving. Money was held in the form of coins. So you could hear and see how much people were giving because they literally had to bring their coins. And what Jesus noticed was that many rich people put in large sums. And and that's a good thing. I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying that these people were doing anything wrong. During the Passover season, which it was, many people would come to Jerusalem and bring their offerings. And so there was naturally a lot of activity going on. It probably sounded a little bit like a casino in the court of the woman, with all the sound of those coins clinking on and on. But then if we look at verse 42, we read that a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. This would have made comparatively very little sound. Two little coins this widow put in were lepta, smallest coins of the day. They were less than centimeter in diameter. They were only worth one 128th of a day's wage. So that's a, a few minutes of work. Together, they made up the equivalent of a quadrant, a, a war Roman penny or, or quarter. As others watched this widow, they probably didn't think anything of her. So, 
she, she wasn't like the rich with a ton of coins to drop into the chest. She wasn't like the scribes who were well-dressed and always honored. She was insignificant to this world. But to Jesus, she was extremely significant. Verse 43 tells us that after seeing this woman give, Jesus called his disciples over for a lesson. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And their initial reaction to this was probably, what? You know, I imagine they, they probably didn't even notice the widow, or perhaps they just noticed how different she looked from many of the other donors. If I was a disciple, I know that I would have been drawn to the, the bigger givers. Ooh, he gave a lot. You know, wow, did you see all the coins she dumped in? That's my natural tendency, probably a disciple's tendency, and probably yours as well. But as Jesus watched these givers, what piqued his interest was totally different. He said to them, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Even though the rich gave a lot, it didn't mean as much to them. But the widow put into that chest everything she had. She, she had two coins, remember? She could have just given one, given 50% of her wealth, but she gave it all. No more money for food or other necessities that day. And by pointing this out, Jesus teaches us that he cares about how much it costs us to give. And he cares more about that than what we actually give. Jesus measures giving differently. It's the size of our sacrifice rather than the size of the donation that matters more to him. And Jesus notices even that the smallest acts of our devotion. If he had a wall of donors, it would look very different than what we're accustomed to today. You wouldn't put your name on a wall for being a $10,000 advocate or a $100,000 legacy partner or a $1 million founding circle member. You could give $10 and be at the top of his list where that $10 million stock donation might not even get mentioned. This is a warning for our church here in the Silicon Valley. You have or likely will have in the coming years accumulated much wealth. And you need to remember that what God has blessed you with is still His. Riches and honor come from Him, not from you. Not from your smarts or your hard work or your intelligence. They come from Him. You are a steward of everything God has provided, and as He gives you opportunity to give out of your abundance, and you will have abundance. Be faithful to do so with a heart like the widow's, willingly, generously, sacrificially for His purposes. Those who truly know God aren't motivated aren't concerned, I should say, merely with what they can take from God. Instead, they are motivated to give their all to God. This is what Jesus had been trying to teach His disciples. He said to them, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. True followers of Christ are willing to sacrifice everything from Him. And to true followers of Christ, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. And some people might think, shouldn't Jesus have had the widow keep at least one coin out of the two. Wouldn't it have been wiser for her to have some money for an emergency? It's not like the temple treasurer 
really needed that extra little coin? True. But Jesus knew that a life surrendered to God is always the best and wisest way to live. There's an incident in chapter 14 where a woman seemingly wastes an expensive flask of ointment on Jesus in an act of worship. And, and others question whether it was wise or not for, for her to use that ointment that way. Because that money could have been, or that ointment could have been sold and the money could have been used to help the poor. But Jesus honored the woman. You can never sacrifice enough for God because God has sacrificed more than, than you can ever sacrifice for Him. He sacrificed Jesus, His Son, for your sins. When we're true disciples, we realize in our hearts how much God has done for us. And though He gives us more than we deserve, we aren't focused just on what we can get from Him. Instead, we want to give and sacrifice for Him. That's what the widow did. And that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to give him everything. To surrender all our life to him. Now how does the story of this widow relate to Jesus' condemnation of the religious leaders of Israel? Well, first, she serves as a counterexample of the attitude that characterizes true religion. Her example of sacrificial faith in God is presented here in marked contrast to the hollow faith of the scribes. The scribes looked and sounded religious to others, but they were empty on the inside. The widow didn't look religious at all, but her heart was full of religion. The scribes devoured widows' estates. The widow gave up her entire estate. And so her example of real devotion to God served as a condemnation of the false devotion of the scribes. But I also want you to notice the context here. Not only does the selfless example of the widow serve to highlight the selfish attitude of the scribes and, and their religion, but her giving also sadly highlights how the religious system of Israel was broken. It's hard to be dogmatic and say that Jesus clearly meant to make this point, but the, the context of this account makes it hard to ignore. Remember that this widow's offering occurs in the middle of a section of Mark's gospel, as well as the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, where Jesus is condemning the false religion of the leaders of Israel. And if you look at verse 40 again, what was one of the chief characteristics of the scribes that Jesus decried? He called them out specifically for devouring widows' houses. And right after that, in our passage, we find him drawing attention to a widow who leaves the temple with nothing to her name, having given it all to be spent by leaders who had made the temple into a den of robbers. And if you glance a, a couple verses ahead to chapter 13, you'll notice that Jesus predicted that that temple would soon be destroyed. So when the, the widow gives, I, I think she gives out of genuine faith to advance God's work. She gives out of a heart that is rightly willing to sacrifice everything for God, but it's hard to ignore the fact that she gives to a system that, is bank, that bankrupts widows and is bankrupt itself, and she gives in a temple that is coming down. Her giving serves as an example to us of real faith, but her giving also serves to highlight and condemn the sad state of false religion that Israel had fallen into. 
Jesus warns us this morning from falling for a deceptive religiosity that doesn't submit to him as Lord. He challenges us to think deeply and carefully and humbly about who he is. And he warns us not to become deceived by a fake religion that is all about us and what we can get out of it. Instead of about God and what we can give to him. Don't assume that you're okay. You may actually be headed toward danger. In the middle of the Pacific Ocean over 15 years ago, I made that mistake. I was struggling to breathe. I was floundering about. But out of seemingly nowhere, an older woman casually sunbathing on a large inflatable raft who had floated out further in the ocean than all the others showed up. And she saved me. She, she let me grab on, and I humbly paddled back to the shore next to her, or she paddled me back to the shore. And the good news for us in this account is, though, is that though we are much like the scribes, proud, self-absorbed, blinded by greed, rotten at the core, perhaps even willing to take advantage of those who are weaker than us, God has not abandoned us. God sees what's really happening, even when no one else does. God sees through corrupt religion. God knows which churches and leaders are faithfully following Him and which are faking it. God isn't deceived, and He will do something about it. Mark reminds us in his gospel that Jesus has come. He had come to Jerusalem to expose and bring down the bankrupt system of Judaism that had developed and instead established something much better to reflect the way of God. And He gave in order to do so. He gave even more than the widow, not just his livelihood, but his whole life, in order to redeem the broken system and the broken people before him. Though the scribes serve as a warning and the widow teaches us some important lessons, our ultimate example in this passage is Jesus. Whether you've been unaware of the danger you're in, or you're floundering in the sea of false religiosity, unable to save yourself, Take comfort that Jesus has come to save you from yourself so that you might serve him with your all. And if you are willing to give your life to him, you will actually receive much more than status and respect and wealth in this world. You will receive the commendation of Christ as he welcomes you into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son who teaches us about himself so clearly in your word and who reveals to us the the wicked nature of our hearts, the deceptive nature of our hearts. Oh, Father, pray that you would work in us true faith in your Son, true belief that, that he is the Lord, and that we would submit to him in everything, that we would see that he is our master and we are merely stewards of everything that he has provided us with. And so help us not to see our Christianity as one that is just about what we can take and receive, but, but to see it as how we can give in response to all that you have given to us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.